everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. This is episode number 189. Hey, it's a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's, oh, I'm hoping we're not going to have any problems today. It's Friday the 13th, 2020. So hope your day is going smooth. Make sure you wrap yourself in some bubble wrap you know, shelter in place, stay away from the virus, and hopefully we can make it through today. And, and soon we'll be turning the calendar over. So, um, yeah, we got a bunch of things that I, it'll be fun to discuss today or you know, maybe not fun, maybe a little bit more serious. But we're going to talk a little bit about Veterans Day and an article that um, I read about Veterans Day from someone that I know. And it was a really insightful article. I want to share some comments on that and then um, some additional thoughts on our Federal Reserve chairman kind of giving more warnings about the economy and what's coming forward. So we got a bunch of things we're going to get into. You know, of course, we're live streaming on YouTube and on Facebook. We welcome your input, your comments, your questions. Just type them in into the comments section. I'll read them on the air, you know, as long as they're not too outrageous. And uh, we'll, um, you know, have a bit of a conversation, a bit of a dialogue. So, you know, even though I'm here on video, you and the audience, you're still involved. And I really welcome your thoughts and participation. Um, but yeah, the the news on COVID, I mean, it's it's starting to skyrocket again. I think this is that second wave that a lot of people were really fearful of. And unlike our, our friends on the right, our Republican friends who were convinced that the COVID virus would just go away, if not in April, then certainly after Election Day. And it's definitely not happening. I mean, it's ramping up. I think we're getting ready for another big time lockdown that's going to happen on Saturday night. I know like my son is been, you know, he goes to the gym frequently almost every day. And now he's going to have to change his plans. A lot of businesses are going to be, you know, either further restricted or in some cases shut down. So we're going to go through a whole other wave of this. And, you know, are we going to start to see the the crisis that I think a lot of us feared in the first wave, you know, with hospitals filling up and, and the like. So hang on to your hats. And it's right before Thanksgiving, right before we're going to see family and friends. And and our, you know, Governor Newsom here in California has already issued a warning. I think it's no more than is it two households, but three or more is is discouraged and definitely no singing on Thanksgiving. Um, So this is going to be tough. I I know my mother is lives in a a, um, a retirement community, but her community is in lockdown right now because of the virus. They had an outbreak in their facility, Uh, only one person, but they're taking precautions. But now with Thanksgiving, I think we're kind of going to scrap plans to have my mom here. So it'll probably just be my wife and I and the two kids. But I know all of us are making some some plans as we go through this. And then just moments ago, I was watching uh, the big screen over here to my left and President Trump is up there talking about the potential vaccine that's coming. And and I know this is a plan they've been working on. A lot of other um, researchers have been working on this vaccine. And it was interesting because Trump really didn't talk too much about the election. It certainly wasn't a concession speech. He was really focused on the virus. But I don't know if it was lighting or what was going on, but Trump's hair was like white. It wasn't even, you know, a little bit yellow. It was almost like it was bleach white. And it makes me wonder, you know, is is this a sign that he's 
recognizing that he lost the election and he's beginning the transition to his new life. Maybe he maybe figures that he can chill out on a lot of the 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 makeup and the hair coloring and all the different things that he you know makes up his persona. So I just kind of wonder. Um, but yeah, the election, I, I guess now Biden has now officially won Georgia. He's officially won Arizona. So I don't and I think Trump has officially won Pennsylvania, no, no, excuse me, North Carolina. And of course, Pennsylvania is, has gone to Biden. I don't think there's any sort of undecided states yet. I think even Alaska came to a conclusion and went Trump's way. But Biden now, if I'm reading this correctly, has 306 electoral college votes compared to Trump in 2016, who had 304. So the the landslide victory of President Trump in 2016 has been exceeded by President-elect Biden. And I, I still see some of my friends on the right that are bitter and angry and and they still live in this world that Trump may win. He still has a chance that there's fraudulent votes. And and I you know, it, it's something I I I think if there's a need to recount in some of these states, then by all means, recount. You know, let's, you know, trust but verify. Let's get the facts. Let's get the data. Let's get the information. And as an aside, um, you know, here in San Diego County, the race that we're all still paying attention to, San Diego County Supervisor District 2, Steve Voss is, you know, every update goes in the wrong direction of Poway Mayor Steve Voss. And now he's behind Joel Anderson by, I think, over 100 votes. But that's going to be recounted for sure because it's such an insane close election. And, uh, you know, if if races are close, they should be uh, recounted. If a politician thinks he's getting screwed, doing a recount to me makes sense. You know, let's just verify the facts. But a lot of people still think there's fraud and, and there's fake votes, illegal votes. Well, you know, bring the evidence and let's just get the facts on the table, you know, and if we need to go to court and show evidence, then by all means, let's do it. But let's not have this case of, um, how should I say, kind of fake news, unverified news floating around. Let's just get to the bottom of it. Um, so, it's uh, it's something. So, it, you know, and it, the funny thing is, is our friends on the right uh, are some of them are bitter because they see president or they see Biden up there with, you know, referring to the office of the president elect. And some of the right wingers are upset. They're like, ah, that's bullshit. There's no such thing as a as a office of the president elect. <laughs> and then if you go back to this time in history in 2016, Sure enough, there's pictures of President Trump on stage with flags behind him, a podium. And on the front of the podium, it says the office of the president elect, New York, New York. <laughs> so in both sides, just playing silly games, you know, just the foolishness of it all. But it is interesting. You know, I think it's going to be Biden. Um, but I read another article that said that maybe the Democrats are a little bit concerned because it wasn't as uh, overwhelming of a victory as they thought. The Republicans actually gained seats in the House. It's 
likely, you know, depending on what happens in these runoffs in Georgia, it's likely that the, that the Republicans retain control of the Senate. I guess some of the state houses flip Republican. So, you know, the, the world, even if Trump is gone, the world of Trump, the, the Trump supporters, the, the nationalism, the America first, that whole movement is not going away, friends. Um, it may get repositioned in the new version of the Republican Party. I'm curious, but it wasn't the landslide defeat that the Democrats were hoping for. It wasn't the the soul crushing, pummeling defeat that I think a lot of people, a lot of never Trumpers were hoping for that the Trump message was going to be crushed. It's not. It's not going away, friends. And whether or not you're supportive of Trump or not supportive of Trump, I mean, that's really the fact. I mean, I mentioned last weekend that on Sunday in the rain you know, days after the election, the Trump supporters are out here in Poway, the intersection of Pomerado Road and Twin Peaks Road, waving their flags, convincing everyone that it's, you know, <laughs> that it's a fake election and fake votes and it's illegal and that Trump is the victor. Still a lot of people that live in that that delusion. That's why I want the facts to come forward and let's just get the data on the table and then get to a conclusion on this. So. Well, again, I welcome your thoughts and comments, Um, but, you know, let's get beyond the preliminaries. I want to talk about this article that I read and my wife shared the article with me and it was really good. I mean, this is an awesome article and the title of it is um, and and this is it it appeared, by the way, as an opinion piece in the twin um, the Twin Cities newspaper up in Minneapolis. And it's from Jonathan Wong. And he says, this Veterans Day, I'm going to try to say, you're welcome to ask me hard questions. And this is a very interesting article. And and I'll share a link in the show notes. But um, just to share some thoughts on this, he, he talks a little bit about how as a veteran, he often hears people say, thank you for your service. And he hears it a lot. And is now, especially that he's out of the military and he's married with children and he's at school and people know he's a veteran. He always hears that. Thank you for your service. And it's kind of a, a thing that a lot of people say. And he usually says, you're welcome. And we move on. Uh, but he started to think about it a lot more seriously. And he said, This Veterans Day, and gosh, I probably should have done this article two days ago on the actual Veterans Day, November 11th. Today is two days later. But he said in the article, he goes, this Veterans Day, I'm going to try to say, you're welcome to ask me hard questions. And I thought that was awesome because not only is he, you know, acknowledging the thank you, but he's inviting conversation and inviting people to engage and to get into this discussion. And he says, do in the article, he goes on to say, do I think that two decades of conflict after 9-11 have been worth the effort in blood, treasure and honor spent? Looking back, would I have made the same choices to enlist and re-enlist? These are difficult questions that take veterans off the pedestals that the American public have placed them on. They allow our fellow citizens to look at veterans more carefully, and that's a good thing. Now, to me, I'm reading this article. I had a lot of different emotions because, first of all, I've met this author. He was at our house, um, and he is the husband of one of my wife's 
former co-workers. And he is now, you know, he went to go to work at Rand Corporation. He's now this Jonathan Wong, a pretty amazing guy. He has, he's a policy researcher at the Rand Corporation. He has a PhD. Um, and he focuses on the role of new technologies, processes, and concepts in shaping how militaries fight. And he's also a professor at the Pardee Rand Graduate School. So this is, and also, by the way, a fellow uh, alum of University of California, San Diego, which is where I went to school. Go Tritons. Um, but I got to meet him and his wife, and they're a lovely couple. And they moved up to the up to the Los Angeles area because now he's working for Rand Corporation in Santa Monica. And so I'm reading this article. I'm thinking, okay, I met the author, which is cool. Um, I like this article. I like the content, what they're talking about here. But the other interesting thing part, part about this is this whole idea of thank you for your service. And, you know, we hear it all the time. You know, when someone's a veteran, immediately, thank you for your service. You'll see this when veterans are interviewed on television, um, even in casual conversation. It's to me, I've always been sort of uncomfortable with how it's so automatic. Like, I understand veterans are fighting for our country. And but this feeling that we need to thank them, that we have to acknowledge them, that we have to in some ways, sort of genuflect, um, always, I was kind of a little bit ruffled by it. You know, I mean, I appreciate and understand what they're doing and I get it, but is it something that I needed to instantly thank them for that? I had to instantly kind of acknowledge them and, and to what's the right word, sort of in a weird way, sort of bend a knee. Um, it always kind of made me feel just a little uncomfortable the way it was such a, a, a quick reaction to that. And but a lot of people I understand is kind of uncomfortable for me, for me to bring this forward, because in our culture and American society, there is massive reverence um, and support of veterans and of their our active troops. And I understand why. I mean, it's a big part of America and people have, you know, risked their lives in these jobs. Many have lost their lives um, fighting for our country or defending our country. So I understand the the support, the reverence, and especially on Veterans Day. I mean, gee whiz, my Facebook feed was full of military photos of many of my friends, um, and in some cases, their their parents and their loved ones that they shared. So it's just it's an interesting kind of when you get into the world, like I, I've never served in the military. My family that hasn't been a part of our family history, but I know that when I talk to people about veterans affairs, military, active troops. It's, you know, there, there's a, I don't know what the right word is, but it's, it's, it's a topic that you have to treat respectfully. And if you say anything the wrong way, it can really tweak some people. So you have to sort of be careful on how you go about it. And here I am in a podcast talking about it. But um, I thought it was interesting that he was almost sort of challenging the idea that people say, Thank you for your service. And he says, you're welcome. And everyone kind of does what's expected of them. And then they move on to the next thing. He's saying, I invite you to ask me hard questions. And I thought that was awesome. And Jonathan Wong goes on to say, I came home from the invasion of Iraq in 2003, feeling like we were doing good in the world. But by 2006, I could see that our prospects for success in Iraq were not good and that we wouldn't be leaving anytime soon. I was resigned to a future of deploying over and over until I was killed. 
The only thing I worried about was how I would die. I hoped that I wouldn't cower. I hoped that I would die on my feet doing my job. Like, wow. Okay, so now I'm getting a greater sense of this. And I've heard stories of people that have, you know, fought in Iraq, served in Iraq, and, and, and how there was death and danger all around them and how it was so difficult and so challenging. And he's sharing some of this. And, you know, it makes me think, like, I would love to talk with him and like, what are the questions I would ask, you know? And, and I, I kind of got a list here, but I want to invite you to, to, you know, respond to his opening question here. The headline of the article, when people say, thank you for your service, he responds, you're welcome to ask me hard questions. What kind of hard questions do you think you would ask of a veteran? Maybe you yourself are a veteran, what are some hard questions maybe you've asked yourself or hard questions you've asked of other veterans? I, I just think this is a really healthy process. I mean, some of the questions that I have for veterans, number one is, why did you enlist? Why did you feel it was important for you to serve? Now, for some people, they got drafted. They didn't have a choice, which frankly violates the whole notion of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To me, the military draft is something I strongly oppose. To me, it's extremely un-American process. But some people were drafted, but so many, you know, really since the Vietnam War, we have a voluntary military. So my one question is, why did you enlist? You know, what drove you? Because I know for some people, it's a family thing that's passed down from generation to generation. Other people are very patriotic and they feel they want to serve this nation. There were people like, NFL star Pat Tillman, who played for the Arizona State um, Sun Devils and the Arizona Cardinals, he was such a patriot that right after 9-11, he went in and fought in Iraq. And sadly, he lost his life to friendly fire. Um, I often wonder why people choose to serve. Um, Do they do it out as a, a sense of obligation, a sense of duty, an expectation in the family? Maybe some people serve because they have higher aspirations in their career and they know um, having a stint of military service will be beneficial. I think people that want to serve in politics, I think that very well may be part of their strategy. Um, other questions I would ask uh, veterans Was your experience aligned with your expectation, you know, particularly if they went if they enlisted during a time of war? I think some people might have a glorified notion of what it's like to go and 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 be in combat. Was the reality on the ground? Did it match your expectation? My guess is it might have been a lot gorier than they maybe they were expecting. Um, Were you really defending our freedom in America. This is a key question because you always hear this, that, the, that our troops are out there fighting for America's freedom. But really, are they? Now, you could make a very sound argument that our troops in fighting in World War II definitely were fighting to defend America and ultimately the freedom of Americans um, so that we weren't invaded by our enemies, you know, whether they were the, the Nazis or, or the, the Japanese. It makes me think, by the way, of the of the um, the TV sh- the program. What was it called? The um, uh, the Man in the High Castle. Have you ever seen that? It's on Amazon Prime. It's the fictional story of when uh, a fictional 
alternate alternative outcome of World War II, where the Japanese take over the Western United States and the Nazis take over the Eastern part of the United States. It's a really, really good uh, series on Amazon Prime that I would recommend strongly. But yeah, were you were were our troops really defending freedom, like in the Vietnam War, in the Korean War, in the Gulf War in the early 90s, in the wars since 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan? Is, do they really believe they're fighting for America's freedom? You know, I, I question that. I, I don't know if I know they're fighting, but they're and they're fighting for certain reasons. But is it really to defend America's freedom? Uh, Jamie Tobit on the on the live stream chimes in. Man in the High Castle was very interesting. And I agree, Jamie. I really liked that show. I thought it was very well done. Um, it was a little bit of fantasy that was part of that. A little bit of supernatural. But um, it was a very interesting uh, uh, series. I enjoyed it. Um, other questions. Um, what did you learn while you were deployed? You know, particularly if you were deployed in Iraq or in Afghanistan, what are some of the things you learned, particularly by interacting, not fighting with, uh, you know, against your adversaries, but just interacting with regular people in those countries and, you know, parents and children and what you witnessed. I would love to learn what you learned, um, while you were serving, um, did you feel there was a clear mission, a clear objective in what you were trying to do? Now, obviously, for your specific task, you probably had very clear instructions. But more broadly, did you feel that the United States had a clear mission and a clear um, objective that we knew that if we did these things, we would be victorious? We could claim victory and then return home triumphant. Was that ever clearly defined to you? Because for me, as a citizen in the United States, to me, it's very vague when our troops are in Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere. What's the definition of victory? Um, did you as a troop, did you understand what that was? Um, were you told the truth? <laughs> you know, when you come back after serving, did you get a different story? Did you learn different things? Were you told the truth while you were serving, um, you know, away from away from home? And did your opinion on our U.S. foreign policy change? And I think that's a little bit of what the art, the author of this article, Jonathan Wong, was getting to was because, you know, he now studies foreign policy. Um did your opinion of the American foreign policy change? So Jonathan Wong in the article goes on to say, most important, you have a right and an obligation to speak out. And he's talking to all of us reading the article. You have a right and an obligation to speak out, to question and to criticize issues of national security. Everything that the military does around the world is done in your name. No experience in uniform is necessary. Being American is enough. So, yeah, you absolutely have the right to ask hard questions of our military. Um, and particularly when you encounter a veteran on Veterans Day, he thinks this conversation, this dialogue should be encouraged. And I think this is awesome. It's very healthy. It's a wonderful way to just kind of get beyond that quick knee jerk. Thank you for your service. You're welcome. And then moving on, it kind of invites that discussion. Um, Jonathan goes on to say, rather, thank me for my service by being a curious and informed citizen. Pericles once said of the Athenian democracy that inspired ours, if a man makes no interest in public affairs, we alone do not commend him as quiet 
but instead commend him as useless. And so it is today. Um, so I, I just thought this was a great article, you know, just kind of asking hard questions of our military. I, I wish I knew about this article on Veterans Day because I would have shared this in the podcast last Wednesday. But to me, this was really special. And so, you know, I ask you, um, what are some questions you would ask of veterans? Um, what are some hard questions you would ask, not just of a, of a frontline guy, uh, but maybe even of our military leaders, maybe of our secretary of defense or even our president of the United States? What are some hard questions you would ask about our foreign policy? Um, this was one thing that really concerns me because, you know, President Trump, when he ran for office, he ran to end the foreign wars, but he hasn't. He's escalated the drone war. Um, the, the troops are still in Afghanistan. We still have troops all around the world. He hasn't, he hasn't, uh, brought our troops home. I wish he would. Um, but we are now, we're now at the very end of his first term, his only term. And I think the, the baton's going to get passed to Joe Biden and Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. Um, Joe Biden, I think, is someone we need to be concerned with. Now, I've heard stories that when President Obama was in office, uh, Joe Biden was the devil's advocate. He was the one that was always calling to uh, minimize war, to avoid war. Uh, But really, was he doing that as a devil's advocate or what does he really believe? And now Biden is getting up in years. I think he's going to be heavily influenced by the people that surround him. Is Biden going to be the president that's going to get us out of these darn wars that we've been in in the Middle East now for two decades? I mean, 9-11 happened 19 years ago. Oh, my God. So long ago. And we've had a presence in the Middle East, you know, a military footprint in the Middle East for 30 years. And what has it gotten us? Frankly, I could, I think you can make an argument that it's made matters worse for America and worse worldwide. Um, we kind of poked the, the hornet's nest, and I think we're getting stung in a lot of ways. And now there's no way to sort of save face and come home. But I wish our leaders would find a way to do that because there's no winning the war in Iraq. I mean, that we can go back centuries and how many different nations have gone into that pit and have lost and then had to come back home. It's an unwinnable war in Afghanistan. Um, frankly, I don't think we should have sent troops into Afghanistan in the first place. You know, a military response by air after 9-11, you know, maybe. Uh, but definitely when Osama bin Laden was killed, that should have been the moment we declared victory and then brought our troops home. But that's not what happened. Um, so really interesting questions about foreign policy. I, I, I am very intrigued by it. I find that my Republican friends and Democratic friends are generally have similar opinions on, on foreign policy. Definitely our elected Republican and Democratic uh, leaders are very aligned on foreign policy. Um, you don't see much difference on foreign policy between the two as it relates to war. I mean, certainly Trump has you know, withdrawn us from the Paris Accord and who and a lot of other things. Um, But from a military perspective, I don't think there's that big of a difference. I'm hopeful we're going to see a difference with Biden, but I'm not expecting it. Okay, um, 
I do want to get to this other article that I read that I thought was really good. And it was about our economy as we know it might be over. Uh, before we get to that, I, I just do encourage you to you know, support the podcast. And what you can do is you can give a thumbs up on an episode, give us a like, a heart, whatever makes sense to you. Um, or you can share the podcast. You can subscribe. And you can not only subscribe on our YouTube channel, but you can also subscribe to any of our audio-only podcast platforms where this podcast is, is presented, like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Well, Apple Podcasts now is the new version of iTunes, right? Um, at least for podcasts are concerned. Um, the Stitcher and Spotify and iHeartRadio and Listen Live, we're on all those platforms. And you can subscribe to us there. If you feel we deserve it, um, leave us a rating or a review, like a five-star rating, a little sentence or two. That's always helpful. Um, anything you can do to help the uh, build our audience, I really, really appreciate. Um, Okay, so on to this next article, and this was on in CNN, and you know, there, if you go on CNN.com, it's funny. I, I used to think, okay, like roll the clock back 20, 30 years ago, that, well, not 30 years ago, but let's say 15 to 20 years ago, that Fox News was right-wing, and MSNBC was left-wing, and then CNN was kind of down the middle. I don't think you can say that anymore. I think CNN definitely more leaning left, probably more anti-Trump, especially since Trump was going after CNN. It's funny how everything's changing now. There's a lot of, I know a lot of the Fox News people are hitting the, the eject button, and I know their ratings have been down because uh, Fox News was basically saying Biden won, and the, and the Trump fans are really upset. I know a lot of Trump people now are, are really going hardcore into Parler um, as their alternative to Twitter and Facebook. Have you been on Parler before? It's another social media site. I went and checked it out, gosh, maybe six, seven months ago. Um, it was it was very much like an echo chamber of Republican talking points. I, I need to go back and give it another look. But but anyway, this is an article from CNN and, and they have they're they're great for clickbait on their article uh, headlines and the economy as we know it may be over, uh, according to the Federal Reserve chairman. And immediately you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, because this economy in many ways is like a house of cards, right? I mean, that we're printing money out of thin air. There's all kinds of redistribution of money, um, whether it's in the form of unemployment or stimulus checks or handouts to corporations. Um, it makes you wonder if all of that ended, what would happen? I think we would see a tumbling of the house of cards. So I saw that headline. I'm like, oh, here we go. Um, but there was some really interesting things in this article. And the chairman said the pandemic has accelerated existing trends in the economy and society, including the increasing use of technology, telework, and automation. This will have lasting effects on how people work. For example, it's likely that lower paid workers, as well as those in jobs requiring face-to-face -face interactions, such as retail or restaurant workers, will shoulder most of the burden of this shift. These groups heavily skewed towards women and minorities have already been among those most affected by pandemic layoffs. Well, this is absolutely true. I mean, I, I, this is almost anticlimactic because we've seen a lot of this already. We know that, you know, work from home or telework, as you want to call it, uh, is a new phenomenon. And I, I, we're seeing cases like for one of my clients. So I do consulting work. They their marketing team. They had everyone 
on staff, in office, working together. Now, because of the pandemic, the whole team is working remotely and they're more productive than they ever were when they worked in the office. And the manager of that department is very happy and pleased with how his team is performing. Um, I think work from home is one of the silver linings of this pandemic uh, for those of us that have jobs where that's conducive. You know, for those of us that work in, you know, as consultants or freelancers or those that work in computer based jobs, white collar jobs where they can be functional remote. But definitely for workers that are frontline people at restaurants and retail. Yeah, they're they're the ones they are the pawns in this game that are getting tossed around. Um I often comment about how it's really hard as a small business owner to react appropriately to the start, stop, go, stop, pause with the economy. And, you know, here we're about to go into another stop for a lot of business categories as this COVID lockdown starts on Saturday night. Um, But for the workers, I mean, they're the ones getting jostled around as well. And then, you know, they may get unemployment benefits. They may not. In some cases, they are getting unemployment benefits that pay more than what they were getting paid for at their job. But, you know, they they know they're living on borrowed time. At some point, that's going to end. And then what? So people are getting jacked around by this whole lockdown situation with COVID. And, yeah, it's affecting a lot of these frontline workers. And then meanwhile... No doubt there's a lot more automation coming. A lot of people are fearful of automation. I think Andrew Yang's candidacy really fired up even more fear about automation, artificial intelligence. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that now. And a lot of jobs are going to be eliminated by automation. Um, But it's nothing to fear. Now, granted, if you have one of those jobs that's going to be eliminated from automation, well, you better start figuring out what you're going to do next. Uh, You better start building skills and learning new things and adapting to the evolving economy. But overall, I think automation is something that we should embrace. I think automation, first of all, historically, automation has always created more jobs. And you're thinking that's got to be counterintuitive, right? Automation must eliminate jobs because the, the, the software, the computer, the technology is replacing the human worker. And that's true on a short term basis. But long term, our economy grows. And what happens is, is that human capital, um, financial capital, human brain power are redeployed. Um, They're no longer focused on those rote routine tasks that frankly are jobs that a lot of people generally would prefer not to have in the first place. Um, Maybe they're only doing it just so they can earn enough money to live, but it's not necessarily the kinds of jobs that most people really love doing. When those jobs are automated and that financial capital, that human capital, that brain power are redeployed, that's how we create new industries, new business categories come forward. I mean, think about farming as an example. I mean, you can roll the clock back 200 years. I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but it's got to be at least half, at least 80% of America 200 years ago worked in some form of farming, right? Um, Now, less than 1% of the workforce works in farming and we have more food than ever. And now we have all these industries that have been created, 
in the late 19th century, automobiles, railroads, airplanes, um, electricity, all of these new innovations create new industries, new sectors in the economy and and tremendous opportunity for higher paying jobs. We're seeing some of that now with the explosion of of technology jobs since the 1990s in, in on on the Internet and in various other categories of technology. I don't think we need to fear automation. I think we need to embrace it and get on the train and make adjustments. But definitely, as we're going through this COVID situation, as the economy is disrupted, not only by automation and by COVID, there are frontline workers. They're going to get caught up in the wake of all of this turmoil. And we're definitely going to see it. I think that's what the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jerome Powell was talking about. He goes on to say the post-pandemic economy is also at risk of being less productive. That's a I want to it wasn't fully explained what he meant by that, but I made me wonder, does he expect our gross domestic product to to shrink? Um, You know, if we have what is it? I think it's two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. I think that's a recession. And if we have. I know I don't know what the definition of a depression is. It might be three or four or three out of four or something like that is qualifies as a depression. But it makes you wonder, you know, have we so damaged the economy from all of these lockdowns with covid that we may greatly suffer as a nation in terms of our economy? And I know we're experiencing it to a degree. We all sense it's coming. But is it going to be maybe even worse than we expect and I don't know the answer to this, but it, when when the Federal Reserve chairman is making these comments, this is something you have to pay attention to. This isn't just some random guy making comments about the economy. This is, you know, some would say the chief economist of the nation. Now, I don't necessarily put that much faith in the Federal Reserve, but when the Federal Reserve chairman speaks, I mean, it makes an impact. And and already, you know, his comments have affected the U.S. stock market. Um, stocks have weakened even while prior the market had been going up because of vaccine hopes. These comments weakened the stock market when they were mentioned. Um, he goes on to say, even after the unemployment rate goes down and there is a vaccine, There's going to be probably substantial group of workers who are going to need support as they find their way in the post-pandemic economy. Jobless workers are in a tough spot. Some benefits have already dwindled and more are set to expire at year end. And he thinks another stimulus is necessary. That's what he goes on to say in this article. So it's it's very interesting. Um, I know that um, the politicians in D.C. have been debating another stimulus. Of course, now the Republicans are realizing they're out of power and now they're suddenly becoming more fiscally responsible. Right. There was no there were no limits on the first round of stimulus that happened in the second quarter of this calendar year. Now, the the Republicans are being a little bit more conservative. Of course, the Democrats want to you know go for it and provide more stimulus. What's going to happen now? We're in a lame duck section. What's going to happen when a Biden is elected? Will we see more or not elected? But when he's inaugurated, will we see more stimulus? I don't know. I applied for the PPP loan and I did get one from my small S corporation. My company was affected legitimately by the covid crisis. But 
I also figure, you know, most likely that money is going to be forgivable. And the amount of money I pay in taxes, if I have an opportunity to get a little bit of it back, I'm going to take advantage of it. So I, um, I did take a, a PPP loan um, and I'm diligently waiting for the time when I have to file the forgiveness paperwork and we'll see. Um, but that was helpful for me. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I lost business because of COVID. I know many people suffered far more than I did. I was lucky that I have a lot of clients and clients that I can sort of um, not have all my eggs in one basket. And then my primary client happens to be in a category that's considered an essential category. So that was, I was fortunate there. My client didn't get shut down. In fact, my client thrived during COVID um, as uh, people began to refocus their efforts in other areas. My client sector actually thrived. I was fortunate, Um, but I know a lot of people aren't. So is another stimulus coming I don't know, but it's funny how we've lost sight in a lot of ways of the COVID crisis. It seemed that we were, you know, it was it was front and center in March and April. And then, you know, then the primary elections really started wrapping up and we got into the conventions. And then we, many people wanted to open up the economy when we got into June and then the economy opened up in July. And then suddenly it was the election was the primary thing on people's minds. But then now that the election is over and it's it's simultaneously occurring with a giant spike in covid cases, it makes me wonder if people took their eye off the ball. If people were more cavalier and I know there's a certain segment of society that refuses to participate in mask wearing or social distancing. Um, I, I participate in it. I think it's in my best interest to participate in it because I don't want to get sick. It's also um, consistent with my own values that I don't want to harm anyone else around me. So I, I'm not happy when government is telling me to wear a mask, but When companies ask me to wear a mask to enter their store, I have no objection at all because they get to set their own policy. But for many other people, I wonder if they've taken their eye off the ball. And I think during the summer, we saw a lot of that where people didn't care as much. And the funny thing is, is is the hypocrisy of it all, because when Biden won, people were dancing in the streets and social distancing wasn't observed at all. Uh, But yet it's usually our friends on the left that are much more hardcore and vigilant about social distancing and wearing masks, except when they have a reason to celebrate. Um, So I I know that uh, I've heard stories that one of Biden's advisors um, said that it might be a good idea to have a nationwide lockdown of four to six weeks. And of course, that would start right around Inauguration Day on January 20th. Now, granted, this is just talk, um, but it's interesting that that's being discussed. Would that happen? And, and more importantly, would it work? Would a legitimate four to six week shutdown, A, would people participate fully? Would we get enough participation uh, for it to work? And then frankly, even if everyone did participate, would that be enough to wipe out the virus? Now, maybe it might be done in, in um, you know, at the same time as we have a, a vaccine. And so maybe it might work. I don't know. 
Um, I just know we're going back into the heat of it. And, you know, now we're entering winter season and the flu season and we guys got to be more careful out there. But, uh, yeah, I, for me, we're, like I said, we've already made some adjustments on our Thanksgiving schedule, but, the, but back to the article, I think it's interesting is you, know, they talk about frontline workers that are being affected by COVID. We have more shutdowns that are going to happen. More people are going to be unemployed. More people are getting tossed around like, you know, a pair of shoes in a dryer banging around. Uh, they're, they're, they're pawns in the game. Uh, again, a little bit of a tangent. Have you seen the Queen's Gambit? Great uh, program on Netflix, a seven, uh, a seven episode miniseries about um, a young woman who becomes a chess prodigy. I, I can't recommend that enough. But yeah, we're a lot of our frontline workers or a lot of our workers that don't necessarily have college degrees are the ones that are getting jacked around by this. So, but maybe you have a college degree. Maybe you have a college degree and you're still working in a sector that you're getting hit and, and jostled about by this COVID crisis. And so I, I'm asking you, what are you doing? What are you doing to take more control over your situation, over your career? If you think your job, your career may be at risk to any level or any degree, what are you doing as a contingency? Um, are you building new skills? Are you building new relationships so that if something happened in your current job that you might be able to redeploy? Um, are you building skills that can be more marketable um, in the new economy? If uh, if we're getting into more automation, are you taking advantage and learning about technologies that are all about leveraging automation? Jamie Tobit chimes in and says, do you think that promoting the general welfare, a la the Constitution, means, means taking measures to enforce public health? This is a good question. I often comment that one of the ways that our federal government creates a whole set of problems is that they go beyond the scope of what their real focus and definition uh, of their of their job description is. And I'm a big uh, supporter of the idea of limited government because the more government is limited, then the more individual liberty we have. But I know a lot of people, especially my friends on the left, my more progressive friends, will often cite the general welfare clause as saying, well, the government is entitled to do whatever it takes to promote the general welfare. And that that almost becomes like a blank check, like a like a wild card in a game of poker that could be used for anything. Now, should the federal government enforce public health? And that's was Jamie's question. He says we already can and do confine people who are actively infected with tuberculosis. Now, that is more along the lines of what I think. Now, Jamie, I, I recognize that you are a professional in the medical community and you have far greater, deeper understanding of this than I do. But from my perspective as a layman, I think that the government has a role to play in a pandemic. I don't necessarily think the government should be shutting down the economy. I don't necessarily think that the government should be 
issuing mask mandates to everybody and penalizing people that don't wear masks because you end up when you do that, you end up penalizing innocent people. People that aren't infected may become penalized by this. People that are good actors um, and that are taking precautions, but maybe not following it to the letter of the law. They're the ones that could potentially be ticketed or God forbid jailed by the government for noncompliance. I don't think the government should be aggressively going after innocent people, uninfected people. I do think that in the matter of a pandemic, that the rightful role of government is to test, trace, and isolate. So if a person is infected with a virus, like you mentioned, Jamie, with tuberculosis, they should be confined. They should be quarantined because a person, if they are infected, particularly with a virus where there is no vaccine, a virus that is highly contagious, that has that is far worse than just say the common cold. That person with that virus could inflict harm on people around them. They could be almost the equivalent. I know this is kind of a crazy analogy, but the equivalent of someone with a gun just shooting into a crowd aimlessly, potentially harming people around them. I often talk about how this podcast is all about our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you go and read the, you know, we're talking about promoting the general welfare, which I think is in the preamble of the Constitution. But if you go to the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, where it talks about, you know, we're all equal, all men or all humans are created equal. We all have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It also says in in the preamble of the Declaration that the role of the government is to secure those inalienable rights. So if the government's role is to secure our right to our own life, then that means that they should protect us from harm. And if people are, whether they're out on the street with a gun shooting randomly at people or they're infected with a virus in a pandemic that's highly contagious and could harm other people, government has a rightful role to contain those people and remove them from society until it's safe because they are effectively violating the individual rights of other people the people shooting guns randomly and the people that are infected with a with the, the coronavirus so i think there is a role for the government to test trace and isolate um that makes sense to me now there is a a broader issue is does the government have a role to play in public health well i think it does from that same perspective from the perspective of protecting our inalienable rights. I think government has a role to play. But generally speaking, I would prefer to see health matters not managed by government, but instead managed by medical professionals, by doctors, by scientists that aren't necessarily politicized by the government. And that's the danger of when government gets involved in a lot of this is that it does become politicized. So, um, Yeah. So coming out of this COVID crisis, we're going into another wave of this. What are people doing? What are you doing about it? You know, we're self-isolating. But more importantly, if you are at risk of having your 
job or career disrupted, if your income may be disrupted, what are you doing about it? Are you sitting idle and just waiting for the world to collapse around you? Are you depending on a government check that you may or may not continue getting? I think a lot of those uh, unemployment checks may be expiring by the end of the year. If I read that article correctly, I don't know if that's exactly the case, but what are you doing about it? Now I'll tell you what I'm doing. Um, and I've been doing this in varying degrees prior to the pandemic. And I've been doing it even more since then. Um, I have my own business and to me, that's a huge part of it. Uh, having my own business, I'm no longer sort of working for the man, you know, I'm no longer, dependent on a single employer. I'm not putting all of my eggs in one basket. Um, to me, that's huge. I, I can control my time and I can control where I focus my energy. Um, I'm not immune to any economic fallout of this, but I do have far greater control. I'm not going to be necessarily a victim of a layoff. Although I could be a victim of having my services not necessary, but, but if that happens, I have other accounts, I have other clients. So I've already been doing that. Um, I'm also doing this podcast and this podcast to me right now, I'm not making a nickel off of it, but I think in the future, I have an opportunity to do that. And I'm learning as I go and going through this podcast process, I've learned so much, not just in terms of learning from my guests and learning about the topics we discuss, but I'm gaining more and more experience on what it takes to build a podcast. And that's helpful. And a lot of those skills are helpful to my clients that I work with. But the other thing that I'm doing, and I'm starting to do a little bit more of this now, is doing more entrepreneurial activity as um, in, in the in the e-commerce space. Is creating or actually working with new technologies to try to attract and retain customers. And I'm, I all along have been doing a lot of email marketing. That's always been a big part of a lot of the work that I do for my clients. But now I'm doing a lot more of it for my own purposes. I'm doing it not necessarily to help my clients, but to help me. And last year I embarked on getting involved with ClickFunnels and ClickFunnels is a really interesting technology about building these sort of um, landing pages on steroids where you can drive traffic to those landing pages and offer, um, you know, particular lead magnets to people that you can generate leads and ultimately generate sales. And I began experimenting with that and experimenting more with Active Campaign, which is another email marketing platform that plugs in with ClickFunnels. And I've since switched. I'm now moving into the world of Kartra, which kind of combines. It's like ClickFunnels and Active Campaign merged into one. And I'm beginning to work with that more. And I'm beginning to take a re-energized look at a lot of these other areas where I've dabbled in, um, in terms of building products and offering services of my own and beginning to monetize those more aggressively and to begin to use more of these technologies to help me attract and retain clients to help me close more business. And I'm really excited about this because there are other sectors of categories that I've been dabbling in really as an entrepreneur, completely independent of a lot of the consulting work and the marketing services that I provide to other clients. I'm now really treating myself as a client of my own. And it's very, um, it's very fulfilling. It's very rewarding. 
And I'm looking to do this in a way to begin to open up more revenue channels, more sources of income. So again, I'm not having all my eggs in one basket. And at the same time, developing and building skills with these new technologies, many of them automation technologies, marketing automation and sales automation technologies that I can use to my own benefit that'll help me be more productive. I can go, I can be much smarter as I go to market. I can learn more. And I think I can take a lot of these learnings with me to develop more products and services that are aligned with this podcast. And I've talked a little bit about that ideas that I have with, with coming out with my own digital online training courses, potentially writing a, an ebook or, or maybe even a larger book, doing more of that. But I'm beginning to kind of build a bit of an infrastructure, really enhancing and growing my skill sets in some of these new technologies. As a guy, you know, I talked about President Trump with his white hair up on stage. I think he's transitioning to his next segment of his life. But you look at me, I'm gray hair guy in my 50s. I'm constantly challenging myself to learn new things. I'm trying to not remain stuck in technologies and ways of going to market from the 1990s. I'm trying to push myself and to move forward so that I minimize my risk as I go through this economic revolution and the economic turmoil that we're experiencing with COVID. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm working on building systems to generate more leads for my clients and for me. Coming up with products that I can resell or create that can generate revenue for me. Um, rather, you know, in addition to the work that I already do for my clients. And so I'm looking at my world really from a career perspective as really three, three parts to it. Part one is the marketing products and services and consulting that I already do for my existing clients. And I have been doing for over 20 years. I have a second part of it that I am a digital entrepreneur and it's like my research and development team, if you want to call it that. It's where I do my experimentation, my learning, my growing, and I try new things and I look for ways to to grow, to learn, to build skills, but also to try to create new revenue streams. And the third part of it is this podcast and everything that surrounds this podcast, really the John Riley project, everything is part of that is the third component. And I think I have an opportunity to not only prosper as I go through the pandemic um, and as we come out of it, but I think if I do this right, it'll set me up to be, to continue to be productive, to continue to have um, something really important to focus on as I go, go into retirement, which will be, gosh, I don't know, five years, eight years, 10 years. Um, but when I retire, whenever that day is, I'm not going to become a person that does nothing. I want to be actively engaged. I want to have work places where I am focusing my physical and mental energy, where I have work to do, even though I would be in so-called retirement. That's another big thing why I think this podcast project 
um, can be a really great thing when I move into that phase of my life. So a lot of this I'm doing now is just laying the groundwork for that and learning and experimenting as I go. So I ask you, what are the things that you're doing to get through this crisis, um, this next wave of this pandemic, um, the disruption of automation and artificial intelligence, you can't depend necessarily on your employer for sticking with you. You you Companies don't stick with employees for the lifetime like they did for our parents and grandparents. We can't count on getting handouts from the government. So what are you doing to take control of your career, control over all of your sources of income and diversifying yourself to the point that you don't have all your eggs in one basket? That's my question to you. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, I, I guess I want to just, you know, I always say this. I, I w- would enjoy your participation on social media. Um, you can join us on my John Riley Project Facebook page where I post all of these um, podcast episodes. You can comment there. Um, or on the John Riley Project Insiders group, which is a small group on Facebook. You have to answer a few questions to get in. We let everyone in. Just search in Facebook, John Riley Project Insiders Group. And there we have a little bit more intimate discussion with some of our fans on the podcast. You can also find me on Twitter. John Riley Poway is my handle. I'm on Instagram, but I don't really do as much on Instagram as I should. That's that's one of my, my other challenges for myself is to get more involved with Instagram and maybe some other uh, social media. I'm, I'm obviously on YouTube. A lot of our listeners and viewers will comment in the YouTube comments after every one of these episodes. So you're welcome to, to participate in the discussion there. Or you can just go to my website to johnreillyproject.com and you get on my mailing list. And I'm going to start doing a little bit more email to the list to let you know some things that I'm working on with the project. Um, and then, yeah, of course, we invite you to like the episode, give us a thumbs up if we deserve it, a rating or review. That's really helpful, especially on if you're on Apple Podcasts. Um, that would, I'd really appreciate. Leave a five-star review if you think we deserve it and any comments. Um, okay, so I, I have a closing quote. I always have a closing quote. And I've mentioned before that the one president of my lifetime that I thought was way better than he ever got credit for a president that may possibly based on my own criteria might be the best president of my lifetime. And you're thinking, who would this be? It's got to be Reagan or Obama, or or it's definitely not Trump. I'll tell you that. Um, It might be, you know, Clinton, but you know, for me, I think it was Jimmy Carter. And I know a lot of people are down on Jimmy Carter and, uh, you know, and there was a lot going on then. There was a lot of problems with our economy then and the Iran crisis, uh, the Iran hostage crisis happened then. But I've, I've given Jimmy Carter props for he was a huge deregulator of the airlines and of trucking and of beer. <laughs> he deregulated the beer industry. And I think we're all better off for it. But I know that. Jimmy Carter was a peaceful guy, right? He wasn't an aggressive war guy. I think that's part of the reason why he struggled during the Iran hostage crisis. He wasn't as gung-ho to go in. And remember, they eventually did go in and, and it was a helicopter you know, raid and, and it ended in a crash. It was a terrible accident. And 
that crisis was never really resolved until Reagan became president. It's a shame. That was something I wish he would have handled better. But he had a really good quote. And I thought this was aligned with the opening article from Jonathan Wong about Veterans Day. And Jimmy Carter says, war may sometimes be a necessary evil, but no matter how necessary it is, um, it, it is still evil. It is never a good. We will not learn how to like, how to live peacefully by killing each other's children. And that's from Jimmy Carter. And that's just, that's really nice. I mean, that's really heartwarming because a lot of this warmongering is we're killing each other's children. We have young Americans that are fighting overseas in these wars. And meanwhile, Americans are, you know, we have a drone war going on, dropping drones, sometimes in civilian communities and young people halfway around the globe are dying and suffering unnecessarily because of these wars. This is why I was hopeful President Trump was going to bring our troops home. He campaigned on that, of ending these foolish wars, but he never did. He didn't, and he might have, we increased the drone war, but he's never really brought our troops home. Our troop levels in the Middle East have been equal, if not greater than when he took office. Will we see Trump reduce and bring our troops home during this lame duck period? I would be very pleased if that happened, but I don't expect it. But we'll see. And I look forward to discovering what Joe Biden's foreign policy is. I'm concerned about that, too, because he has shown instincts to be aggressive on war. He was also very aggressive on criminal justice in the early 90s. And I think his crime bill in the 1990s has been a big reason why we have so many people protesting in the street for Black Lives Matter. Part of the problem was Joe Biden being too aggressive with policing. And I worry about his aggression as our commander in chief. Matthew Brannigan chiming in. It's a case of balance. Jimmy Carter is one of the nicest people ever to become president. Unfortunately, being nice is not good enough to be a great president. Yeah. Now, Carter was a good man. He still is a good man. I mean, it's amazing the things he's doing. He's in his 90s. He's building homes for Habitats for Humanity. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of our presidents have been nice guys. I, I think George Bush, George W. Bush would be a great guy to go have a beer with. I think Barack Obama is a good guy. Um, Clinton, yeah, kind of good guy. I, I mean, he's very personable. I could never imagine hanging out with Reagan or or H.W. or maybe Ford hanging out with him because he was a sports guy. He was played football at Michigan, but I could never imagine hanging out with Nixon or LBJ. And then, you know, before that was Kennedy. That's before my time. Carter was a good guy, but there were things that went wrong in Carter's presidency. I mean, he wasn't the best president ever. I just think he, he, I think he gets, he, um, he doesn't get the credit he deserves. You know, he brokered a peace accord between Egypt and Israel. That's a great thing. This is a peace accord when they were actually fighting and they were at war, unlike the peace accords Trump has brokered with Israel and the United Arab Emirates that weren't necessarily at war in the first place. Um, and I think the work that Carter did as a deregulator is massive, huge. Um, I wish 
our other presidents would have taken his cue. I think our economy is way better off for the deregulation of Jimmy Carter. Uh, I think Carter's instincts on war are absolutely right. But yeah, he he wasn't a saint. Um, he wasn't the best president. I just think he might have been the least worst of the presidents of my lifetime. And uh, the more I learn about him, the more I realize, hey, not a bad guy. He had solar panels on the on the roof of the White House. Reagan took him down. I have solar panels on my home here. We use those solar panels to power our two electric cars. And I love that technology. So good for you, Jimmy Carter, for having solar panels. Matthew Brannigan on the live stream chimes in. I have much more regard for George W. Bush in retrospect than I did at the time. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Yeah. You know, looking back in history, presidents tend to, you know, soften a little bit in our eyes. I know the Obama family has had a good relationship with, with George W. Bush and his family. Um, Bush got us into some awful wars. Uh, Bush during his presidency, we saw financial regulations increase that I think were a disservice to this country. We saw a lot of other problems in the Bush presidency. I think of the quagmire in the Middle East. He didn't start it. I think his father really was the, the beginning of the, the military presence in the Middle East. But really, the problems in our Middle East go to our foreign policy. You can trace that back to the 1950s when the CIA helped overthrow the Shah or the, not the Shah, they overthrew who was the leader of Iraq, of Iran at the time, and they helped install the Shah. But even going back to World War I is when they divided those lines right after World War I. We've been in the Middle East way darn too long, you know, attempting to be a kingmaker and a central planner. And I think that makes no sense at all. But George W. Bush made it worse. But looking back, yeah, you know, he seems like a nice guy. And, he, you, you know, he has what he believes is the best interest of the United States at heart. But do people look back on him and maybe think of him in, in a much more rosy light? I think a lot of people are, especially when they compare him to Trump, because I think Trump has been a disaster on many levels. But I think we're done with Trump. And I think the press conference he did today, and again, I, check me on this. I, I don't know if it was the lighting or if it was legit, but his hair is no longer blonde. His hair is white, as white as the side of my head is. And uh, he still has the flowing locks in that perfectly crafted um, uh, hairstyle. But yeah, I think he's transitioning. I think Trump realizes he's lost. I think Trump is going to put up a fight. I think recounting is fine. That makes sense. He might get traction in the courts, but I think he realizes he has to go down fighting. He can't go down with his tail between his legs because that would goes against his whole brand as a fighter. But I think if what I saw was real, his hair is a signal that he is preparing for the next segment of his life. And I thought that was very interesting. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, this was been episode number 189. Oh, we got another comment from Matthew Brannigan. I feel the same about Tony Blair in the UK. His one big mistake along with Bush overshadowed by his other achievements. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I remember Blair was always the partner um, of Bush. And I think Blair partnered up with Clinton on certain things too. 
I don't know. Thatcher is an interesting one. If you're going to go back to the UK, I liked a lot of Thatcher's instincts on many things, but not all things. Um, I saw what they they called her the Iron Lady. There was a, a movie about her not too long ago. It might have been Meryl Streep that played that role. I can't remember. Meryl Streep tends to play a lot of roles. That was a good movie. Um, but yeah, Thatcher, I tend to look at a little bit more favorably than I do of uh, Tony Blair. But at any rate, let's end this podcast. This is going on too long. Uh, this is the John Riley podcast. This is episode number 189. It is Friday the 13th. In, in 2020, it's November 13th, 2020. I wish you nothing but good luck today and good luck for the rest of 2020. May us all get through Thanksgiving healthy. May us all be able to see what family we can. And I wish you well for this weekend. We'll see you later, friends. Thanks for listening and thanks for watching. Bye bye.